The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my saviour. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Uh, what a week it's been. If you've been able to see, not the cricket, that's passing, but what a week it's been to see the heroes that are in this uh, picture. I don't know how much you've uh, been able to see of it, but it's been 75 years since the D-Day landing. It's a generation that uh, kind of hewn out of granite. The women who predominantly stayed behind and did the war at home, the men who predominantly went overseas and fought and carry the scars still. Those who are still living, those who still have courage because they've made out of granite to jump out of planes and land on friendly soil that was now or once was enemy territory. I wonder what they would make of a generation that's made not out of stone, but out of snow, as is said in the modern generation. But what a remarkable generation they were and still are. Uh, life to them, for the uh, paratroopers especially, landing on the 5th, those who landed on the 6th on D-Day, the, uh, the territory that they were about to walk upon of French soil was a battlefield. And uh, that's a theme that uh, David wants us to grasp, I think, from Psalm 27. I don't know uh, how you feel this morning, but David's experience, although he was king of Israel, was that all of life is confrontational. There were people who were not knocking at his door, but they were coming at him, coming at him with spears, coming at him with threats, coming at him with resources to do him harm. And yet here, David has found a key to life, not just to survive, but to thrive. Look at uh, verse 3. He's come to a place in his life where people, an army is besieging him. They're making wars, uh, war against him, threats against him. Yet what does he say? Sentence number 3. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. And you think, how on earth is that possible? You listen to 19, 18, 21-year-olds who jumped out of the landing craft and they, to a man, say, we were afraid. We were slipping over bodies. We were afraid. We were treading on the dead bodies of our friends. We were, we were afraid, but we did it. Somehow we overcame fear. You may not fear like someone's going to come with a, an AK-47 to your front doorstep. We live in Epsom and Newell. I think crime is about 4%. Very, very, very safe part of the country. 
and part of the world. But there is something about life, sooner or later, when you go through your optimistic 20s, your hope-filled 30s, and your realistic 40s and beyond, that life is kind of tough. Last week, we described it as an undercurrent. And sometimes, the older you get, you recognize that life actually is quite confrontational. There is fear in abundance. There's anxiety that get you in the middle of the day, let alone the middle of the night. And David wants to say, whether you realize it yet or not, Life, like Psalm 27, actually is a battlefield. Life is a battlefield. But if David, who faced real life, people that wanted to take his head off his shoulders, people who wanted his scalp, um, people who wanted to take his life, if he found, if he found the key to living, a strategy for persevering, so that Psalm 27 verse 3, he can say, although an army, not just one person with a vendetta, an army is besieging me, they're after me. If David has found a strategy for life so that he will not fear, surely we would want to hear his advice and heed the message of Psalm 27. But first of all, we need to see that uh, David is describing that life is a battlefield. Life is a battlefield. That's the first point. Life is a battlefield. Conflict abounds. You you know that if you have a profession where there is often one-upmanship, that people will tread on you, whether it be to get in a sports uh, team at school or college, it's, it's a brutal atmosphere when it comes to professional sport, when it comes to finding small margins of uh, error or weakness in an opponent, and it's just the same when it comes to the professional world, is it not? People want to tread on the other to get uh, one-upmanship and get above the other person. And when life is so confrontational, when life is so hard, when there are wounds um, physically or mentally or scars, Actually, the one thing we want to do is to create a safe place. And so home in the modern world has become the uttermost. Millions and billions of pounds are spent on home. And part of the reaction is that, and the reason for that, is because life is so hard. So we want to find a safe place for ourselves with increasingly large gadgets to watch the goggle box on. And we want Netflix, and we want Amazon Prime, and we want all these resources. Because if life is hard, we want to retreat. Think about how home and a battlefield compare and contrast with me. Home is a place of safety. The battlefield is a place of danger. Home is a place where you are known and loved. You can let it all hang out. You can wear your pajamas at whatever time you want. It's It's a place where anybody, is that just me? It's a place where everybody knows your name. But the battlefield, that's a place when you're put under stress and duress. Home is a place where you can relax. Home is a place where you can let down your guard. A battlefield, just ask the people that landed 75 years ago. The battlefield is a place where you always keep up your shield. David says life does not contain battles, it's a battlefield. It's a battlefield, there's no place in that world that's not part of the battlefield. Look at sentence two. Men want to devour me, they're making war against me. Verse three, an army is besieging me. That's what people want to do. People want to take advantage of you in relationships and professional capacity. But it's not just that. Look at sentence 10. This is a shocking sentence. Not just enemies out there. Look at his family dynamic. There's no safe place in the world. Sentence 10, pretty shocking. Though my father, though my mother and father forsake me. You've got people who are at your front door. They want to attack you. They're your enemies. But it's not just enemies from without. It's enemies from the family life, from within that David is facing. My mother and father forsake me. What's he getting at? He's saying life is a battlefield. 
You will face battle and confrontation on almost every side. There is no safe places. No matter how big your telly is, no matter how comfy your sofa is, no matter how big the bar of chocolate is or how deep the bottle of red wine has become, actually everyone will forsake you. Relationships, if you put your security in those, they will fail. Whether it's mum or dad, whether it's spouse, do not put too much stock in those relationships. Not too much stock so that you put your trust in them and your security in them. Don't trust the next politician who says, if you follow me, whatever party you want to follow, whatever colour badge you put in your front lawn, so to speak, no one will give you the safety that you long for. No politician can do it. No relationship will promise it. No TV, no chocolate bar, no wine bottle. And when life is that hard, when it's so confrontational on every side, here are some strategies that you might kind of think about depending on your uh, personality. You can have a strategy of life that if life is this hard, if I'm going to get oppressed from the outside, if my mum and dad are going to let me down as well, then how about I just, how about I just fight back? You become a confrontational person. If that's in your DNA, then work would actually, work might go easier for you because you just confront people, you're aggressive. You tread on whoever gets in your way, but actually you could go up the ladder quite, quite quickly if people are doormats to you. You just fight back, but eventually the cost is you could become isolated. Secondly, you could say, well, actually, I'm just cynical. If life is this hard, if everybody's out to get me, I'm not going to trust anybody. I'm going to protect my heart by not trusting myself to anybody else. I don't care about anyone or anything. You become cynical to defend yourself. Another third way is that you just become defeatist. If life is a battle, then what's the point of fighting? But then David comes up with a fourth way. How does David, how can he say, enemies are against me, an army is besieging me, verse 2 and 3, but my heart will not fear. What does David do? David, this is where I want to spend most of our time, second point, life is a battlefield. There is oppression on every side. David sees the battle, sees something he wants and longs for, and he pursues it with all his might. What's that? It's God's face. Life is a battlefield. But true life, real life, is seeking God's face. Now this needs some explanation, but look at sentence four. Here's David, he says, the reason I've defeated my fears, the reason I'm living for joy, the reason that I'm actually hope-filled with people after my neck is because I've thought one thing and I've got it. Sentence four. He says it in different ways throughout the psalm, but this is what he says in verse four. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's what he longs for, that's what he's pursuing People are after him. He does not say, God, what I need actually is a get out of jail card now. What I need now is a, an, an ex-fill really quickly. I need to be like a member of SEAL team that connects my backpack and gets parachuted out of here, taken away to a safe place. I don't need another army to come in and rescue me, SWAT team or SAS coming in. What I need actually most of all is to gaze on your beauty, verse 4. What I need is to see you and to know more of you. That's what my heart desires, even more than saving my own neck. I wonder how we would respond. But what does he mean? I want to dwell with you. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now here's the big problem from the Old Testament. David is expressing something, a longing that no one, nobody is allowed to do. No one can see God's face and live. No one can dwell in the house of the Lord 
for more than a short period of time and survive. So what is David on about? Has he misquoted or something? Look at what he's saying. Verse 4, I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to see him in his tabernacle. Verse 8, to you, O my heart, he has said, seek my face. The face, Lord, I will seek. It's the same thing. I want to be with you. I want to see your beauty. I want to gaze on your face. But what is he saying? Because no one can do that. And now there's the tension in the psalm. Here's David's strategy for life. God's home is where I want to be, and that's the only place of security in a world that's a battlefield. God's beauty, well, the beauty of the Lord Jesus is so beautiful. God's beauty is so sufficient to me that I don't need to look anywhere else to be filled up with beauty. His beauty is that sufficient. It's greater than every bit of romance I've ever dreamt of, every piece of art that I've seen and been inspired by. God's beauty is greater than that. God's face is the face that I've been looking into remotely through every relationship that's promised so much and delivered so little. So verse 4, I want to go to the house of the Lord so I can gaze on his beauty because there alone is beauty. Verse 5, in the day of trouble, he, God, will keep me safe in his dwelling. In his dwelling is the only real home in the battlefield. Verse 5 again, he will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle. In God is the only safety. In God is the only place of beauty. In God is the only home that I've been longing for and every other little home points to. And David sees that. I want to see God face to face. It's the only thing I want, even more than my own safety. But what's the face of God? Is it like the, the, the face of a mountain, the, the north face, the, the face of the eye? No, the face of God is something unique. It's the gateway to a personality. You know what it's like when, if you're a parent, you give your child the look. You're out with friends and uh, they're just playing up just a little bit and you're slightly embarrassed, so you give them the, the smile and then the smile turns into the look, which is, uh, you know, if you were an ice queen, they would be a pillar of ice or stone right now. Then the ice queen look doesn't look and then you go on. The face, the face of a person is the gateway into someone's heart, the gateway into someone's dwelling place. So you know when you have that smile from a loved one, parent, spouse, someone in your relationship with, that you're loved and affirmed from that smile. They love me. But equally, you know, when you get that face that we won't describe, you're in trouble. The face is the gateway into a person. So what does it mean when it says, I want to see God. I want to be in his dwelling place where no one can go in there. So what does David mean? And I want to see the face of God. I want to dwell with him. Because God is transcendent, he's above all, he's holy, he's other, he's majestic. We cannot approach him because of his purity. And yet this psalm in the Bible also teaches that God is imminent. That means he's close. Because of Jesus, the holy God, we can have a relationship with him through his son. What does this mean? How can anyone come to the face of God? In Genesis 3 and 4, it's a very interesting passage. In Genesis 3 and 4, after the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and their son Cain sinned. They become their own masters. And in Genesis 4, you read this sentence. Cain says, you've sent me away from your face. You sent me away from your face, therefore I will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Do you see the link that Cain makes? When I'm with God, I'm truly home. I'm enjoying his face. I'm enjoying his smile and presence. But now, because I've become my own master, God has driven me away. I'm now homeless when I long to be home, and I can no longer see the face of God. That's the link. Our own sin drives us away from intimacy with God. 
Here's another example. Cain was cast out, but here's another longing. Moses. Moses, Exodus 33, really famous passage in the Bible. Moses longs to see God's face. Show me your glory. I want to know you. I want to enjoy you. I want to experience more of you. Show me your glory. God says, I cannot show you my face. Maybe you could see my back. God is spirit. He's not physical. So what does it mean? It simply means this. No one can see God's face and live. We long to be our own masters. God has driven us away because of our sin, but we long to be home in this battlefield of a world. So how is it possible that we can see God's face and live? One more passage, Zechariah 3, perhaps the most uh, important example of all. Zechariah 3, that tiny book that no one reads right at the end of the Old Testament, penultimate book. It's a significant book if we want to understand the gospel. Because here you meet um, the high priest. The high priest who once a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, he would go into the tabernacle with blood. His friends would have stayed up all night the night before and prayed over him and with him and reminded him of scripture. He would have had a week of preparation and a night of preparation and he would take some sacrificial blood into the Old Testament tabernacle before the presence of God for the sins of the people. And Zechariah receives a vision from God to say, that's just a picture. That's a picture and that is an insufficient reality. You cannot make yourself pure. You cannot uh, make yourself clean enough. All your striving, all your efforts is just a shadow of a greater reality that would come. And in Zechariah chapter 3, it says this, God says, but I will send my righteous branch and he will take away the sins of the people in a single day. I will put clean garments on him. I'll put a clean turban on him, clean clothes, and he will enter into the presence of the Lord. And Zechariah gets it when we don't. Let's draw it together. What is it being said here? Zechariah sees the reality of hundreds and hundreds of years of priestly activity, of getting ready, of going into the presence of the Lord because God is holy. One person does it once a year with a rope around their ankle in case God's glory consumes them, of the Shekinah glory in the centre of the tabernacle. There was a veil that separated the glory of God from any human. And Zechariah sees a reality of one person who once and for all would not take an offering of blood, but would offer his own blood, who would not be prayed for by his friends the night before to give him courage and remind him of the promises of God, but someone who would be left alone. Someone who wouldn't have clean clothes on, but someone who would be naked on a cross. Zechariah is looking forward by the Spirit of God, to show him the Son of God who took away the sins of the world. And that is the only way that people can see God's face and live. That's the only way that the, tra the transcendence of God, the glory of God, can be seen by lowly people like us through his Son. He was stripped naked, the Lord Jesus. He was alone, not together with his friends. This veil, as Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world, that veil that existed in the tabernacle, that reality that was there in the temple, was ripped from top to bottom. Because the righteous branch came to take away the sins of the people in a single day, in a single sufficient life, once and for all. And that's how, through the sacrifice of King Jesus, sinful people can dwell with the holy God. Because their sins have been taken away once and for all. Jesus Christ died. Why? Why is this table here? 
so that we could know him personally, so the barrier could be removed. So God wouldn't just be a boss to us so that he could become our father afresh. Now, there was a man who's, uh, this reality came true to him uh, about two centuries ago. His name was C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon was a Baptist and he was longing to go to the local Baptist church. Trouble was, there was a just torrential snowfall, so he couldn't get there. So what does he do? Being a good Baptist, he finds the local Methodist church. Now, because of the snowfall was so strong, there was only three or four people there in this small chapel. And just as he couldn't get to where he wanted to go, the preacher who should have been at the Methodist church couldn't get there either. So what are you to do? It's the deacon's nightmare. There was a deacon there and he thought, I know what I should do. The preacher's not here. I'm going to give it my best shot. I know one verse. And so up goes the deacon before this huge multitude of three or four people. And he says this. He opens his Bible, this poor man. He opens up Isaiah and he says a sentence. Look to me, all ye ends of the earth and be saved. And the poor guy hadn't been to Bible college or preacher's class. He knew nothing of that. So he kept saying the same sentence again and again and again. That's all he had. And praise God, that was all he needed. Because God, the Holy Spirit, took that sentence and he made these truths of the gospel really, really real to a certain C.H. Spurgeon as a young man. And he was converted. He became a Christian in an instant. And Spurgeon said, I've been preaching and teaching the Bible, but I didn't have a clue what it meant. This is what I learnt. He said, in an instant, I've been living all my life feeling, how can I ever please a holy and terrifying God? How on earth can I keep the Ten Commandments? I was preaching and teaching, but I didn't understand the gospel. Now, there's a separate part to the story. But the man said this, all you need to do, you three or four people, is look. All you need to do is look. Look away from your self-sufficiency Look at the sufficiency of a holy and pure God who's made a way and his name is Jesus. Spurgeon said, in a minute, one minute, my whole relationship with God was totally transformed. I realized that he's done everything for me. My heart was melted. I sensed the Father's arms were around me. I went home, I opened up the Bible and I started to read. For the first time, the truth stopped being letters on the page and they started to thrill me and touch me and overwhelm me. He had access. He had access to the face of God through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he was sensing and enjoying the presence of God in his heart. They stopped being ink upon a page and they became alive. That's what it means to come in contact with God, to know him and enjoy him by the power of the Spirit through the sufficient work of the Son. It's coming in contact with the face of God. That's what, uh, that's what Cain realized he'd lost. That's what Moses longed for. That's what Zechariah saw. And now every single Christian, regardless of age or stage of life, can experience and enjoy. We are quite high. Let's come down lower. So how do we do it? Let's finish up with how do we do it? How do you encounter God's face? How do you, if you know that reality, if you understand the gospel, but how do you do it? How do you do it? This longing, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever but I live in Epsom and I work in London. I live in Epsom and I, I, all my friends are in Epsom and my kids are in school in Epsom and Newell. And what does that wonderful truth mean to everyday life? Here are some things. Look at sentence eight. First of all, there is, there's a command to pursue God. Look at sentence eight. Oh heart, he has said to you, seek my face. David is speaking to himself. It's not self-talk. It's, it's what God has said to him. He's taking himself in hand. 
Seek my face. Therefore, what's his response? I will seek it. This is the challenge of the psalm. You may be let down by a parent. You may have let down a loved one yourself. You may be very, very easily uh, identifiable with sentence 10. My father and my mother have forsaken me. I've got deep, lasting wounds of regret from my early life. It's something I'd rather erase. Look at the challenge of the psalm. No matter what has happened, and you think there's no safe place in this world, there is. <coughs> Sentence 8, seek my face. We're living in this battlefield. There are many, many wounds. There are many possibilities for us to be harmed. But this psalm speaks of a safe place. The dwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the challenge of the psalm is, are you pursuing that? Are the wounds so big that they identify you and you can't move on? They are real, they are lasting, but do they identify you still? The challenge of the psalm is to say, no matter what you face on the battlefield, here is a safe place eternally. Will you seek the Lord? Will you seek him? Is that what you long for? Continue to pursue him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Don't be defeatist. Don't be confrontational. Don't settle down in this world. David says, here's one thing I long for, verse 4, verse 8. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. He's my chief aim. He's my greatest joy. Pursue him. Here's the second thing, if you're not yet a Christian. Look at sentence 13. There is a content that is required if you were to become a Christian. There's something you've got to engage with. I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord. If you want to seek God's face through his son Jesus... There is a body of evidence you need to look at. Have you looked at it? There are questions that you need to ask. Is the Bible true? Is this person, Jesus, someone who's made up? Is he a person of history or not? Have you engaged with the evidence that there is? And there's a lot for Jesus. You have to believe in something to engage with God. Have you looked at the evidence? If, you, if you're a lady, there's a great opportunity for you to do that tomorrow night. If you're a guy, come and see me. I'd love to read the Bible with you or someone else can come alongside you and do that. Have you spent time, have you thought through what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Is it something you're ignoring? Is it something you're interested with? There's a content that you need to engage with. Sentence 13, I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord. Do you? Thirdly, Christian friends, you may have said, yeah, I believe in the stuff about Jesus. We're going to have the Lord's table shortly. I know that uh, I come to the face of God through his son. I know that the Holy Spirit's in my heart. But actually, I've got issues of confidence. I've got issues of assurance. Look at David in sentence one. He's not afraid of anything. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? But I'm afraid of being a Christian at school, you say, if you're a teenager. I'm afraid of what I would lose if I stand up for Jesus. Well, it's not just if you're a teenager at school. I'm afraid if I'm an adult and I own up to being a Christian to my neighbor, they'll shun me. If I share my faith with someone at work at lunchtime, they'll just ignore me. I'll get passed over. Why is it that we're so afraid of so many people and so many things? Is it not because God is small and people are big? Here's David who says, with words of challenge. No, no, the Lord is my light and my salvation. God is huge. Let's get people in their proper perspective. Are you afraid of people because God has become too small to you? 
He continually reminds himself. It's a discipline that we need to get into our hearts and minds. I can dwell in the house of the Lord. People seem big to me, but courage. Take heart. Remember who God is. Remember the fact that you, because of Jesus, you're going to be next door to the king. Eternally. People will come smaller and smaller, and you will have confidence to say, have you heard about Jesus? Do you want to come on this course? Do you know that I'm a Christian? You can ask great questions of someone's presuppositions when people are small and when God is big. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's a stronghold for me. It's a discipline of reminding yourself of the gospel when people are big and God is small. Remember who God is. Here's the other thing. Notice what he prays for. David could pray for the spiritual SAS to come in, for the angelic host to come and rescue him. But what does he pray for? He doesn't say, uh, Lord, uh, please will you send an army on Tuesday because I want to share my faith with people and I want to be taken away. Please will you do this for me? Please will you do that for me? He doesn't have a blank prayer check where he can ask whatever he wants. He says, look, I want to see you. I want to gaze on your beauty. I want to praise you for who you are. Christian friend, is that the way you and I pray? When you pray, what's the first thing we do? Is, is it the shopping list? Or is it adoration? Is it praise? Is it meditating on who God is? What do you pray for when you pray? What order do you pray for those things? Of course we can pray for our needs. But it's a question of order. Do we adore God for who he is? Do we get on our knees and long for success, long for protection, long for, or do we first of all adore who God is? Do we praise him for what he's done? Do we praise him and enjoy him simply for who he is before we come to our shopping list of what we need? Do we gaze at his beauty? Do we start with that reality for what he's done? It's a question of discipline again. To adore Christ for who he is. To long for the Spirit's protection and help. To look at the beauty of God and say, there's one thing I want in this world more than anything else, and it's you. Have you ever said that, God? You can take everything else away, but please don't take away you. He's his ultimate happy ending, God, you see. And what happens on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday through to next Sunday is fairly trivial. Because we live on a battlefield, but in God, we can dwell in our true home. That's the claim of Psalm 27. We can see his face and we've got real beauty.